Hello and welcome into another episode of the Labuba Pastor's Blog. I'm Masumba Jonathan. Today's lesson is entitled Acts 1, The Kingdom of God. We're going to begin by reading from Acts chapter 1 from verse 1 up to 11. It says this, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The record of Acts begins by giving some details about the period between Christ's resurrection and his ascension, his rise into heaven. We are told that Jesus taught the disciples for 40 days. During that period, we are told he taught them about the kingdom of God. In our study of John, we noticed, noted that the disciples' attention was often affixed on the idea of the reestablishment of the Davidic kingdom, and that was where most Israelites' focus was. I've recently given much study to this area because of some believing friends of mine who shared their end times position with me. It was a position I was unfamiliar with, and so as I've studied different theologians' perspectives on the end times and listened to various teachers, I've noticed debate about the meaning of kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven in the scriptures. Without this recent study, I think I would have bypassed this statement in chapter 1 and not given much account to it. But, but because of this, this recent sort of attention or God bringing this thing to me to study, I feel the need to bring out something for us to think through. Though the title of the study is kingdom of God or the kingdom of God, the points I'm going to emphasize are more about having a balanced perspective that includes everything Scripture says about a particular topic. A friend of mine gave me a, a book to read that presents the four main views on eschatology or the, the end times from Scripture. And interestingly, I found places where each one of them, some I thought more than others, went beyond what Scripture says because they had a certain interpretive position which they needed to make all of Scripture, the rest of Scripture, fit within. Otherwise, their position wouldn't work perfectly. 
And that's a tendency that any of us can fall into. When we have a certain view, we can twist every other scripture to fit within our view rather than trying to just take all scripture in harmony together for what it's saying and in the context in which it's saying it. The expression kingdom of God, first of all, is an ambiguous one. Jesus uses that expression many times in his parables when he teaches about what the kingdom of God is like. He talks about it being like a mustard seed. He talks about it being like a pearl of great value. He talks about it being like um, leaven that a a woman hid in, in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. So there's a lot of different things that Jesus referred to in parables about the kingdom of God. And we need to be careful because one of the first rules of systematic theology is that it's unwise to build doctrinal positions on passages or ideas that are not clearly defined. I'm going to give a few points to illustrate what I mean. First of all, when Jesus came and preached and sent the disciples to preach, they proclaimed this reality. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, we read, From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It can also be translated, the kingdom of heaven is near. This was also what John the Baptist preached. When the Jewish leaders claimed that Jesus cast out Satan through Beelzebul, he made this statement to them. In Matthew 12, from verse 27 to 29, we read, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Notice in each of these passages, the kingdom of God is described as being a present reality in proximity to people in the world. It was here, it had come, it had appeared. Some believers think then that the 1,000 year kingdom described in Revelation 20 is already here and that the language used in Revelation 20 must be interpreted figuratively and not literally. That passage says this from verse one to five of Revelation 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. The book of Revelation is full of difficult language and symbols, but the context of this passage is not describing people in general, 
but rather people who had been previously described in the Revelation narrative. You can tell their the author is making reference to what has already been said in the book. So this is an example of having a position that forces other passages to be interpreted in a certain way. Hebrews tells us, we do not now see all things subjected to Christ in his reign. In Hebrews chapter 10, from verse 12 to 13, we read, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Now, to me, that suggests that we could, we could say that Christ is, is reigning in some sense from heaven, but it's describing his subjects not being obedient to him. So there's some problems there with, with that idea. And earlier in Hebrews 2, in verse 8, it says, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. But notice this, it says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So this is something that is a reality, but the Bible is describing it as coming to full fruition, yet future, not right now. In 2 Corinthians 4, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself, there are some that would say here from Jesus' language about casting out Satan back in Revelation 20, and or, excuse me, from Jesus' language in the passage we read from Matthew about casting out Satan and the binding in Revelation 20, that Satan is presently, right now, in our time, bound, and he cannot deceive the nations. But let me bring in some other passages that we must also take as being true, just like the other passages we've read. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, it says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So there we see Satan blinding, having the power and the ability given to him to blind the minds of unbelievers. That's, you know, a, a way of saying that he deceives them. In 1 Peter 5, 8, Peter describes Satan like this, saying, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, that doesn't describe Satan as being bound. It describes him as a roaming lion who's walking around looking for someone to attack. In 1 John chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, we, we get an important distinction. It says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You notice the distinction there? It says Satan doesn't have power over those who have been born of God. But for everyone else, it says the whole world lies in his power. That's like what God has assigned to him. So do these passages describe Satan as bound right now and unable to deceive people? No, they describe an opposite reality. This is where those who hold to the interpretation of this view must then come up with an explanation in order to maintain their view. 
Some say that the binding of Satan occurred with the destruction of Jerusalem by Rome in 70 AD. I find absolutely no scriptural support for this idea. But even if there was, it would still be contradicted by Jesus stating Satan was bound in his day. Jesus said this in John 12, 31, saying, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. You see, Jesus described this defeat of Satan being cast out as being now in the present. Yet the fall of Jerusalem came about 40 years after the death of Jesus. You see, I'm convinced it's, it's much better to take things at face value and believe them as being true than overemphasizing a point that is contradicted in other places. Is there a sense in which Satan must be bound already by God based on what we see? Yes, because Jesus has paid the cost to take away Satan's accusation against us. The name Satan literally translates as accuser and adversary. Satan wants to prosecute every sinner as being condemned to death. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, it says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. So I believe this is the book of Revelation has to do with many things that are still future. I, I don't believe that, that Satan has ceased to war against God's people and to try to deceive the nations. But the reality I want to bring out to you here that it talks about is that Satan accuses God's people day and night to God. He tries to get God to condemn us. In Zechariah, in the book of Zechariah, we're given a literal picture of Satan doing this to God's people and how Jesus has eliminated his ability to accuse us. In Zechariah chapter 3 from verse 1 to 4, we read this. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Paul describes the freedom of a believer from any accusation this way in Romans 8, verses 33 and 34, saying, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. We see the one who has authority to judge, that's Jesus, has become our defender. But do these things supersede the statements we read about Satan's, Satan seeking to devour us and being the ruler of the whole world? No, they don't. They are, they are all true. We're told this is our present reality in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
We can't say some of these things were written for believers who lived before 70 AD, and now it's up to us to see that we live in a new period and interpret our reality differently. No, the scriptures apply to all of God's children. As we find in, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 30, where Paul says, we are engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Now, there are also some believers who have an idea of Israel and the church being completely separate and that somehow Israel's covenant approach to God is going to be different than the, the church's approach to God, which is we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. But there, there are passages also which contradict this theology. In Romans chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, it says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. In Romans 4, verse 16 and 17, we read, That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the inheritance of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, we read, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 to 16, we find this reality. It says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Notice that he has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. We see that in Christ, both the Jew and Gentile are God's people by faith. In Romans chapter 11, we're told that we Gentiles were grafted in to Israel, the, the promised Israel, the true Israel, by God, by receiving Christ through faith. So that's the only approach to God. That's what gives us covenant relationship with God. But does this nullify what God promises specifically to Israel in its history? Can we say that now everything that God has said to Israel and individually individual Israelites, that's all fulfilled in the church? Well, no, the Bible says in Romans 11, verses 28 and 29, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. So he's speaking about the Jews, separate from being part of the church. But as regards election, that's the same term that is used to describe how all of us come to saving faith in God. It's God who appoints us, not us that choose God. They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. 
for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God says his promises are irrevocable. That means they, they, they cannot be revoked. They are not changed. Changed. This brings us all the way back to the question the disciples asked Jesus in chapter 1 of Acts. And in verse 6, we find them saying, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, remember, the context of this comes on the heels of Jesus explaining the kingdom of God to them over a period of 40 days. And notice Jesus does not say there is no future kingdom for Israel, nor that the disciples had misinterpreted or misunderstood what God had promised Israel. Instead, Jesus replies like this in verses 7 and 8. It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Essentially, what is Jesus saying? He's telling us those things are not for us to be concerned about. God will do that in his time and purpose. What we are supposed to be focused on is being his faithful witnesses to all people to the ends of the earth. Jesus promised the apostles would have this one day. In Luke 22, from verse 28 to 30, it says, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. These are a few points I mean about being balanced. There are some who take Jesus' statements on having all authority on heaven and earth and the gates of hell notwithstanding the church to mean that as time passes, the majority of the world's population will become believers. But this fails to balance itself with what Jesus predicts on the exercise of his authority in saving people. In Luke 13, verses 23 and 24, we read, And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? So we have a direct question here that applies to this very topic. And when that happens in Scripture, that's the best place to, to begin understanding something from. And Jesus said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. In Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Jesus says in John 6.44 that only those his Father draws will come to him. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus also asked this question about when he returns. In Luke 18.8, he says, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That seems to suggest that true believers at that time will be comparatively few. And that fits with Jesus specifically saying here that many will perish and few will be saved. Since he says those things, it is illogical to understand his authority as meaning most people will be saved and few people will reject God. John 3 tells us this reality about mankind that leads to their destruction in John 3, verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. 
It is not only Jews who will reject Messiah as Savior, it is also the vast majority of Gentiles, according to Scripture. I've given us much to think about today, but the main point I want to make is that our conclusions on doctrine must be balanced with all things Scripture says. If we don't do that, we will find ourselves contradicted by and running beyond God's Word. When you hear a truth claim, ask yourself whether it agrees with Scripture. Are there some verses you know which don't harmonize with it? If it, if it does agree with Scripture, then you can trust the truth statement. But if it doesn't agree with Scripture, go back and examine the Scriptures carefully to test what about the claim is faulty. God bless you all.